This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Bruce Lanthier is a clinician scientist at the Child and Family Research Institute BC Children's Hospital, and professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. He has spent the majority of his career exploring the overwhelming evidence that environmental factors like toxic chemicals, pollutants, and contaminants have a profound impact on our health. He has found that the bigger rub, however, is that the difficulty in proving causation has allowed industries to dodge responsibility. And while we have plenty of evidence supporting that most diseases are preventable, we spend only 4% of funding on upstream preventative measures, and policy is often in direct conflict with the science. In our chat today, we talked about all the vulnerabilities created by our current environmental health, which COVID has brought to light in great force, and what we can do as concerned citizens to advance necessary and pressing change. The biggest problem we have in the United States today is that it is a country that is run like a corporation by the mega corporations. So the the regulations are largely still being written by these big companies for their benefit, largely. They're not being written for the benefit of the public. Okay, let's get to my conversation. Thanks so much for joining. I know we spoke earlier. I have no idea what season it is, but several months ago, We did that non-toxic neighborhoods panel, but obviously I've heard about you and your work. And so thank you for your service to all of our children. I know you've been for 30 years and studying the impact of toxins on kids. Well, 30 years was more of a, when I did the video, that was plural. Now it's, for me, it's been about 25. So close. Okay. Got it. 
but yeah, we'll give you the 30. And it's not good, right? Can you sort of give us an overview of what you've learned and what you believed when you started studying and then how that's been informed by what you've learned? So when I started studying lead poisoning, I was focused mostly on prevention, trying to trying to understand how we could prevent lead poisoning. And at that time, there were a few toxic chemicals that had been recognized, PCBs, lead, mercury, but that was about it. And those oftentimes were thought to be around contaminated communities or somewhere else. Mm-hmm. More and more over the past 25 years, what we've learned is that we're all regularly exposed to, to many different chemicals, and we found that many of them are toxic. And that really is in contrast to maybe where we were 50 years ago when what everybody believed was these low levels of exposures we have are inconsequential. They're safe. Don't worry about them. And that assumption that there are these thresholds or safe levels was a reasonable one 50 years ago. But really in the past three decades in particular, this research has just blossomed, showing that a whole host of these chemicals cause harms. And a lot of us have focused on the impact on brain development, but others on fertility, others on heart disease, others on cancer. And it's amazing what's happened in the past three to five decades in terms of our understanding, but it's equally troubling how poorly we've responded to all this new science. Yeah. No, certainly. At Goop, we talk about this stuff all the time, and we're constantly derided for it. I think it's funny, even I've been there for seven years, and and that's starting to wane. I think people, even in the last seven years, have started to come around to recognizing how pervasive and pernicious and problematic this is. But certainly at the beginning of my time there, it was this, like, the body can detox all of this itself. There's nothing to see here. And all of these products and personal care products or pesticides or other environmental toxins are certainly safe, if not like better for the world in the context of we're going to feed the world and other lies from Monsanto. But do you feel like it's changing or do you still feel like there is lack of awareness about what's happening? Or do you think that that consumers are starting to understand the implications and and do what they can? I I think there's a, a, at the forefront, there's a group of consumers who do understand. And that's been quite hopeful to to begin to see that. And yet at the same time, there's all these forces pushing back everything from the fact that most of these chemicals we're exposed to are insidious. We can't really study the impact of these chemicals unless we measure the the blood or the urine of people. And so you don't see them. You can see tobacco smoke. You can smell tobacco smoke. You can see air pollution. But for many of these chemicals, you can't really see them until there's been some harm. And even then, you blame it on something else. So that right. the fact that they're insidious makes it hard. The other part is that there's been such a pushback from industry over the years or they, for a while, they'd say, there's a lot of uncertainty. We don't know. There's nothing to worry about. And at every level, we've had the same pushback. But even within the mainstream, for example, at NIH, there's been a lot less recognition of how important these are. So, for example, 
Two years ago, we studied the impact of low-level lead exposure on American adults. And we found that lead was the leading risk factor for premature death from coronary heart disease, which is the leading cause of death worldwide. And yet it's on nobody's list. And our study wasn't the first one. It's been studied since the 1980s. And there's even studies going back to the 1880s showing that lead was a risk factor for arterial sclerosis. And yet somehow it's been more convenient, easier to blame people for their lifestyle choices than it is to do things about pollutants like lead or arsenic or air pollution that increase the risk for coronary heart disease. And so it's not just industry. It's also there's been this dismissal of it from mainstream medicine as well. I don't want to go down a COVID rabbit hole, but when you think about the intersection of environmental racism and pollutants from fence line communities getting toxic waste sites, and obviously people are well aware of lead and in those communities, and the most recent example being Flint, and then you think about how those communities are being the most impacted dramatically by COVID. And I know that there are a lot of other factors in this country, like people refusing to wear masks and our lack of upstream health care and lack of good health care for people in general. But do you think that there, in time that we'll see that there's an environmental impact that has made those communities particularly vulnerable to COVID? Absolutely. And we can already see that with some of the air pollution studies that have come out There's some good evidence from work looking at the PFAS chemicals that they can diminish people's immune response. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then even looking at other risk factors like heart disease or diabetes, there are upstream risk factors for those diseases that make people more vulnerable to COVID today. And so one, one thing that we can predict, although the evidence isn't in yet, is that part of the reason that some communities are more vulnerable is because of these upstream risk factors and exposures to toxic chemicals that we've ignored for too long. So in terms of lead and adults, because obviously with lead, the massive concern is their impact on developing brains and how they've impaired kids' mental capacity, but it can still affect adults. Like you're not past a past or or is the idea that the lead has been in people's systems for that long? It's probably a combination of exposures that have happened during early childhood, but those exposures that continue into adulthood. And not only is it IQ deficits, there's evidence that it diminishes individuals' socioeconomic status, their ability to attain a status greater than their parents down the road, like when they're in their 30s and 40s. It's been shown to increase the risk for coronary heart disease, kidney disease. It's one of those toxic chemicals that really causes a tremendous amount of disease across the entire lifespan. Yeah. And obviously, we still have lead pipes throughout this country. It's wild. Connected to schools, daycares, obviously still in communities of color and in other communities as well, too. Right. And like a heavy truck going over a road can can release lead chips and pipes. It seems like we need massive infrastructure to fix that. That's right. And you mentioned Flint earlier. And Flint really is just the the tip of the iceberg. And in fact, Flint is really somewhere that the the lead poisoning rates in Flint are somewhere in the middle of uh, cities and communities across the United States. So it's not even amongst the worst cases, but because of how it happened, of course, it was very troubling. 
there's the infrastructure like lead service lines, there's old lead paint and housing, all of these things that we've tended to dismiss to not think about as being a part of what makes us healthy. We yeah. focus so much of our health dollars on treatment, extraordinarily expensive treatment, and neglected things like our water infrastructures, whether it's lead or PFAS chemicals, arsenic. There's so many different things. And in the end, what we know ultimately is that our environment is a much stronger determinant of what diseases we get, of what we die from, than our genetics is. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Is this lead and arsenic from these lowering aquifers, et cetera, is this a global problem or is this why we're also seeing that in America in particular, we're having these like explosions and obviously in COVID, but also in cancers and, and every other, essentially every other chronic disease? These are worldwide problems at different stages. We've done some things in America and North America. We've done some things poorly. We took lead out of paint much slower than many other European countries. We took lead out of gasoline earlier. So we did get some things, but by and large in the past 40 or so years, we've really neglected what I would describe as population strategies, public health efforts. And most of our dollars have gone into treating disease. Yeah. And, and by default, what that means is we're going to have more disease because we're waiting for people to get sick before we do anything. Yeah. Other countries put more money towards social supports, towards population strategies to try to reduce the risks before people get sick. And that's really where we're failing in particular today in the United States. Yeah. And obviously, we don't like regulation, right? We talk a lot about clean beauty, a goop, and we have a really rigorous screen for ingredients that we allow and the products that we sell and the products that we make. And we're not alone in that in the US, but it, it's something that has been taken on by companies because there's no regulation. We ban 11 ingredients in the US. The EU bans, last time I checked, it was north of 1,400 ingredients, right? And I know in other the other chemical industries, we don't have any test information before these things are released. It's only They're only taken off if they can pr be proven to be harmful. And as you said, it's often such a toxic soup, it's really difficult to understand what the primary mechanism was. What do you want to see? Obviously, we need regulation because without 
everyone understanding and, and being able to make really informed choices. And some choices are made for people without their consent. Obviously, that's the biggest issue of them all. But how do we stop that? Like, how do we get ahead of this? I think one of the most important things is to try to go upstream and figure out the root of the problem. Yeah. And you've already alluded to probably the biggest problem we have in the United States today is that it is a country that is run like a corporation by the mega corporations. So the regulations are largely still being written by these big companies for their benefit largely. They're not being written for the benefit of the public. Let me just give you a quick example. Over the past two or so years, I've done a hand-raising survey when I've done talks to pediatricians. And I've done this survey to over a thousand pediatricians at NYU, at UC Davis, at Madison, at the University of Wisconsin, and, and Vancouver to the Canadian Pediatric Society. And I've started out my talk by asking how many of the pediatricians in the audience would vote to either A, increase funding to enhance the cure for childhood leukemia, or B, increase funding to find ways to prevent childhood leukemia. And they could only choose one or the other. And I asked them to think about their children and grandchildren. Five pediatricians out of a thousand voted to increase funding to enhance the cure. Five, less than a quarter of a percent. But if you look at where the NIH dollars go, 1% mm -hmm. of NIH dollars targeted to childhood cancer go towards prevention. Yeah. There's this real mismatch. And my guess is that parents would say the same thing, that they would say, we would prefer never that our child never has it. And we don't have to rely on expensive medications that too often have side effects. So if we democratized the way we make investments in long-term research, we need both, of course. We need good medicines, but we also need long-term strategies to prevent disease. And that's where we've had the greatest benefits in the past century is in population strategies that result in prevention. There's very few cures out there. Yeah. Vaccines are great, but they're, and antibiotics used wisely are great, but there's very few cures beyond infectious disease treatment. Yeah. No, it's true. And obviously, as America can tout some of the finest doctors, certainly a majority of the world's medicines and technical advancements in medicine, and yet we have this incredibly sick and ailing population, this blooming autoimmune disease, cancer, etc. And it's other countries, in part because I think we are subsidizing the world's research and medical advancements can spend and do spend significant portions of their budget upstream. And we don't. And it's pretty maddening. Do you think it's because industry has such a stranglehold or that people are just obsessed with the idea of finding cures, whereas there's no glory in upstream intervention? But what is it? Why do you think that we can't move upstream? Why do you think we struggle so hard to keep people well rather than disease management? I think it comes back to profiteering and yeah. big business. And I think you're right that the, the big industries, pharmaceutical industries in particular, have a stranglehold on not only where we invest our dollars, but the way we think about healthcare. I just mentioned to you this survey about pediatricians, and, and I would bet, 
I bet $1,000 that parents would say the same thing, that they would prefer their children never have a disease in the first place. If we actually gave parents the opportunity, or even the pediatricians, to help make a choice about how we invest our health dollars to identify ways to prevent disease as opposed to just treating it, I think we might have a very different society than we have today. The reason we have it is because it's largely being driven by industry. The fact that ads for medicines are directed at consumers is so strange. (laughs) I mean, what a strange idea that we've allowed to happen here. I'm all for having conversations with doctors and and understanding options and medications. But the idea that um, an ad would reach me before I'd had a conversation with my doctor is so strange. And just, I think, one example of where we've just gone completely off the rails. We've allowed ourselves to believe, even if when you ask us, we don't, that the pharmaceutical industry is there to to help provide us a benefit, to improve our health. Yeah. Of course, that's not what they're there for. They're there to make a dollar by trying to provide these new drugs. But they don't want to create a drug that is too effective because then they're not going to have any profit. And I think part of the challenge is we have to weed out the good drugs from the bad. And there's a lot of not so effective drugs. There's a few good ones, and we certainly want to promote those. But I think we also need to work with physicians to make sure that they're not becoming pill pushers. We also need to work with physicians because, as we said with the pediatricians, they get this idea that prevention is where we should be focused. And yet too often physicians become part of the pharmaceutical industry. They become inadvertently complicit. And it's not, I would imagine if you were to poll all those first year med school students, that's not why they're entering medicine, right? They're, it's a heroic field. They want to make people's lives better. And that's keep- right. And we've made it hard for physicians to provide adequate care to patients. They typically have five to seven minutes per patient. The amount of paperwork they do is overwhelming. I haven't done clinical care for 25 years. And, and I'm thankful daily because it just seems so onerous. But more importantly for me is I've had this luxury to try to focus on ways to shift the system towards preventing disease in the first place. And to me, that's the ultimate goal. And that's what this health system should be working us towards is not just how do we find a cure, but the, the end game is really about making it so that we never have heart disease, we never have diabetes. And of course, we're going in the wrong direction with diabetes. Coronary heart disease actually has come down considerably since its peak in the 1960s. And there's this big mystery about it. What's gone on? And some physicians are convinced it's because of better treatment, because there's fewer risk factors. The evidence really pushes more towards fewer risk factors. Hypertension came down dramatically during the 1980s. Nobody talks about this. It came from, in the beginning of the 80s, about one in three American adults had hypertension. By the end of the 80s, it was only one in five. So there was this dramatic decrease. And what happened was there were reductions in air pollution, there were reductions in lead, 
and there were reductions in smoking. Mm -hmm. Those seem to be the keys behind this mysterious decline. And yet, once again, those are never talked about. It's all about medicines and finding a cure. How do you create accountability when the common refrain, as you mentioned, is that these chemicals are present in such small amounts? And as we know, particularly for ones that are endocrine mimicking, the smaller they are, the more pervasive they can be or the more damaging they can be because they're mimicking your hormones. But when there's so much going on, how do we hold company? How do you prove causation rather than just correlation? How do you start to hold Bayer, who now owns Monsanto, responsible for what glyphosate has done to people or other personal care product ingredients? I know uh, clearly Johnson & Johnson is being held responsible for talc as one example. But how do we start to stitch this together, not only really for justice, but for ensuring that it doesn't perpetually happen? Like, how do we build the case? I think it all comes down to we're operating from a broken narrative. The story of our health is broken. We continue to act as though we can solve our problems by investing in genetics or stem cells or personalized predictive medicine. None of those are going to solve our problems. And they're going to widen disparities in health because they're going to be more readily available to the wealthy. Yeah. So that narrative is not going to get us where we want to go. Now, I have some hope, actually, because people are less trusting of corporations these days. People are asking questions. My daughters are less willing to accept what they're being told about healthcare. Now, occasionally that backfires and they listen to somebody on the web they shouldn't, but they're willing to be skeptical. And so in many ways, I think we're moving in the right direction, even if there's this constant pushback, but it all comes down to the narrative. Once we get to this point of recognizing that the greatest increase in life expectancy in the past century happened because of population strategies, like better water treatment, vitamin D that reduced the fatality rate for measles and tuberculosis, better food, better housing. Those were what led to the dramatic increase in life expectancy. Beyond that, we had vaccines. Again, a population strategy, not something that happens one person at a time in the clinic setting. Mm -hmm. Reducing smoking, safety belts, those kinds of strategies are what led to the dramatic increases in our health but somehow we, along the way, we've been brainwashed to think that they came about because of investments in drugs, investments in genetics. And it's simply not true. Anything is just the things that have brought us closer to nature and back to a pre-industrial way of living with things that are not. And again, it, then I think it gets confusing because people are like, lead is naturally, like a lot of these things that are harmful are naturally occurring, Right. It's a bit of a nuance, but it's not that complicated. One of the things that I conclude when I talk about how do we protect ourselves from toxic chemicals is that we go back to this simple idea that those things that we evolved with are less likely to be toxic. Now, you pointed out lead, arsenic. Those are elemental. Those have been there forever. But because of industrialization, we've increased our exposure by hundreds, if not thousands of folds. So if you go back to the pre-industrial era, we were not exposed to these metals or these other toxic chemicals 
at levels anywhere close to what we're being exposed to today. We'll also have to be choosy. There are some things like vaccines that we're going to want to retain. Maybe not all vaccines, but many of them. And even if we want to be skeptical about vaccines, and I think that's a fair point, that anytime we mandate something, whether it's vaccines, whether it's fluoride, which is essentially mandated, the level of confidence that we should have to make sure that those are safe will never be achieved. We should always be striving to make them safer and not dismiss people's concerns about potential threats. Right. Yeah, I think the vaccine conversation in this country is so depressing because it gets so shut down. It's so third rail. It it means that we can't have substantive conversations about how to make sure that they're how to ensure their safety or will there be advances where your child's genetic destiny is mapped to the vaccine to ensure that it's not going to turn something on that it shouldn't and that we could have those we could have conversations without it becoming highly politicized and fraught. My children are vaccinated. I strongly believe in vaccines. But like you, I want to have a conversation about safety and efficacy and understand all of that and feel like I can ask that without getting a raised eyebrow or being accused of being a conspiracy theorist. I think the the root problem here is who do we trust? Yeah. I was standing up in front of a panel, a scientific panel about three years ago, and it's the first time I said it publicly, but it's true. And I said, I don't trust my government to protect me or my children from toxic chemicals because they failed. They're continuing to operate out of that old broken narrative that says low level exposures are inconsequential. They're safe. Don't worry about them. The new story based on this science that's come out in the last three or four decades anyway, has said that we see a pattern. Even low level exposures to these toxic chemicals cause harm. They cause disease. Some of the chronic diseases that are, t- are familiar to us, from lung cancer to heart disease to diabetes, and yet our government's failing to recognize that new evidence and continues to act as though there are safe levels. I was at a dinner with Dr. Zach Bush, and he was talking about Bayer and the acquisition of Monsanto and glyphosate and the correlation, the extreme correlation between glyphosate use, explosion of use of glyphosate in this country with a lot of downstream health impacts. And he was, he's a beautiful, I don't know if you know him, but he's a beautiful speaker. And he was essentially saying that he thought that Bayer being a German country by buying Monsanto, that the German people would refuse to have another genocide on their hands and that sort of bear that bear would be brought to its knees by that acquisition and that the German people would say no, which I thought was a beautiful idea. But do you think like for huge conglomerates like that are poisoning us, do you feel like their time is near or do you think that this is going to perpetuate without like, governmental action? Well, it'll take some time. What We can look to the past and see what happened with lead as an example. And when we started to regulate it here, the first thing that the paint industry at the time in the 1940s did is said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll reduce the amounts in, le- in our paint. Don't worry about it. And so the government looked the other way. Mm-hmm. Then beginning in the 60s and 70s, as new science came in, 
the industries that were making tetraethyl lead, which was lead put into gasoline, began to see the writing on the wall. And they sold the, the lead gasoline companies to the small chemical companies that would continue to monitor it. But the big ones got out of that business. But we continued to have leaded gasoline for a couple more decades. When we regulated it here, which took two to three decades to phase out, the company sold it to Africa, India, Southeast Asia. I think we're going to see the same kind of thing where this happens in increments and the industries will continue to find ways to profit, even in the midst of evidence showing that some of these chemicals are toxic. Mm. The lead industry in 1984, the president of the lead industry said, our success has been in delaying regulation. That is a strategy. That has been their strategy. That's the strategy of the chemical industry. As long as year by year they can continue to delay regulations, they can continue to make profit and oftentimes extraordinary profit. Yeah. It's three three companies now that own the entire essentially global seed market and then the pesticides and fungicides and insecticides that are built into them. So it is an insane amount of money. And that's, it's another indication of the broken narrative that we're operating out of because beginning at least five, five to 10 years ago anyway, it's been recognized that we do not need pesticides to feed the world. Yeah. That's been a misconception that, of course, has been perpetuated by the industry. And that's not to say that there aren't some uses of pesticides that might be critical, public health emergencies, for example. But the way we use them, the amounts that are used is extraordinarily damaging to the environment and to human health. And we don't even need most of them. I know. It's wild. But I'm optimistic. I think people, particularly in the context of something like COVID, which is obviously bringing everyone to their knees, is that people are starting, they have the opportunity, the time, the quiet to look at this and say, wait, this is insanity. Like we are living in an insane way. And this will keep happening until we adjust. It's a promising possible reboot, isn't it? It is. One of the things I was quite shocked at the response to COVID, that is the the shutting down of the economy, having people distance and work from their homes. And I was shocked for two reasons. One is just the magnitude of the change, which is just obvious. But the other is that, you know, we were estimating a couple hundred thousand deaths at most in the United States alone, which is quite striking. But there's six to 800,000 deaths from heart disease every year. And those mm-hmm. are largely preventable as well. And yet we don't seem to do anything or do much about those, even though some of the same things we've talked about, air pollution, we know is a risk factor for, for coronary heart disease. And yet we've continued on as though nothing's out of whack, nothing's changed. What this, what the COVID epidemic, I think, offers is an opportunity to step back and say, what are the other things that we could do that might improve our health, not just in terms of this pathogen, this virus that we're struggling with today, but over the next 10 to 20 years. There are other chronic diseases. I think we're probably going to find out it's easily one third of deaths are caused by many of the pollutants and toxic chemicals that are being studied today. And yet we haven't done much to counter them, but maybe we will now. Do you think it's simply because 
COVID has a name, whereas all of this other stuff is, again, more insidious, more difficult to trace, and then can be attributed to that myth of personal responsibility? I think it has to do, the main thing has to do with the time scale. If we were seeing the coronary heart disease epidemic kill people so quickly, I think we probably would have done more for it. But what happened was the coronary heart disease epidemic, which began in the 30s, picked up steam slowly. And the first indication was probably somewhere from soldiers during World War I smoking more often and leaded gasoline and air pollution. Uh, but it picked up so slowly that it really, we couldn't link it back to the agent. So I think that's the biggest challenge. And another way to think about that is we constantly are reacting to the next crisis in front of us. We don't take time to step back and say, what do we need to do today? So in 10 to 20 years, we don't have to worry about diabetes or we have half as much diabetes as we do today. Nobody's doing that anymore. We're constantly reacting to this crisis, this budget deficit, this war. There's nobody asking those questions about where should we be in 20 years? Yeah. But I think that the focus of your research, which has been on children, is right. Because I think for me personally, when I became a mom, that's the first time that I started to care. That's not totally true. But it was the moment when I realized like my health that I needed to be around for my kids. And clearly, the worst nightmare for any parent is a sick child. And I spend all of my energy just trying to find GoFundMe cancer fundraisers to give money to just as some sort of please let this not be my child. And so I think focusing on parents and the righteous indignation of parents to try to make this better for our children is the right place to start. But where else? What do you want to see citizens doing? What's our best both offense and defense here? One radical idea, this was from Jeffrey Rose, who was an epidemiologist who died in the 90s. He he focused on cardiovascular disease, but he had a radical idea. And that radical idea is that there is no reason that people in this country can't be as healthy as people in that country. Most of the diseases that we experience are not inevitable. They're Mm -hmm. preventable. And if we started out from that mindset, then we might begin to invest our dollars differently. I think you're right that on one level, and this is really where I've been trying to target most of my uh, work, is focusing on young parents, on mothers. The problem with that, of course, is by the time you're a young parent, you're struggling to make it day by day. (laughs) And what we've realized, and this is another of these concepts that is underlying the population strategy, in order to protect the few, we have to protect the many. And this is a concept that Jeffrey Rose came up with. And basically, I'll try to give you a quick example. In a Canadian study, about 4% of Canadians are very obese, and they're at greater risk to develop diabetes. About 12% of new cases of diabetes will occur in that very obese group. But of course, we're failing to protect or prevent 88% of new cases if we only focus on that high-risk population. Maybe we could focus on the obese and the very obese. That's about 17% of Canadians. And they make up about 38% of new cases. But we're still failing to prevent the majority of new cases of diabetes. So the only way we can really protect Canadians 
is to make sure that we have these population strategies that of course should focus on the high risk, but they also need to focus on the low risk, the low to moderate risk population, because that's the largest segment of the population. And that's where even at lower risk, the majority of new cases are going to come from. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that we can invest in personalized predictive medicine to solve our problems is terribly flawed, both economically and just in principle. And again, I get back to this question, and maybe this is what your audience should be asking themselves. Would you rather rely on the medicines that will be available? Undoubtedly, they'll be expensive. There'll be adverse effects, side effects. Or would you rather your government begin to invest today so that in 10 or 20 years, you don't have this type of heart disease or diabetes or your child doesn't have leukemia? I think that's the key question we should be asking ourselves. And then how do we, because I think I, can, I can't speak for everyone who's listening, but that's certainly what we care about at Goop is the prevention. So what can we do to inspire and encourage that? What are the actions that we need to be taking besides trying to buy clean whole food that's fresh or frozen, not supporting companies putting harmful ingredients in personal care products, et cetera? Like what else can we do that's big? I think if we can begin to accept a couple of these radical ideas, that first of all, even extraordinarily low levels of exposures to toxic chemicals and pollutants can cause death, disease, and disability. Number two, in order to protect the few, in order to protect each one of us and our families, we have to protect the many. Mm -hmm. Number three, every disease, almost every disease, can be prevented. There are a few rare genetic conditions that we don't have solutions for, but most of the diseases that we encounter today that our parents die from or our children acquire can be prevented. Now, that's a radical idea, but if we acknowledge that, even with a few caveats, it might change the way we invest our health dollars. And finally, we should be investing more of our health dollars in prevention. Mm -hmm. In the United States today, we invest less than 4% of our health dollars in preventing disease. Thank you for your work and your research and your efforts to educate all of us. Do you have any final predictions about, do you think that there'll be any other revelations from COVID in this period of time? Do you think this is, the t- this is the light switch going on? Well, one thing I've become convinced about is that real change does come from outside the system. Uh, we can't continue to rely on our political leaders. We can't rely entirely on scientists or public health leaders. It really does have to come from the community. Mothers have to get together for example, and begin to demand that we focus more of our attention on prevention. Now, the community has to stand up and say enough. At the start of the conversation, I mentioned that we met doing that non-toxic neighborhoods panel, but just that alone, taking the time to go to City Hall, to write a letter, to find out what's being sprayed in the parks near that your kids play in, it's just one, one first preliminary step to make our environment safer. And it's a great example. Many of my colleagues and I, we go testify in in Congress or 
serve on scientific advisory boards, and yet we've seen very little action. Even when you know they tried to ban chlorpyrifos, which is an insecticide, it failed to happen. And yet then we see a small group of people in Irvine, California get together and say, wait a minute, we don't need these pesticides in our school playgrounds and our sports fields and our parks. And they brought about change. Yeah. And you begin to realize that's where change begins to happen in our communities, not in our institutions. And we can't wait for the institutions to catch up. We need the community to lead the way. Yeah. No, absolutely. And it's it sounds like a Herculean effort. But in the instance that Kim Conte, when I met her and, and then some friends took on Santa Monica and Brentwood, and it's often it just requires a letter. They just then they're like, huh, who knows? Let's crack open the files and see what we are spraying. And then they choose something better and that it can be that fast. But it has to start with it has to start by someone asking the question. I agree. And it's also a sign of hope because I don't think it could have happened quite that easily 20, 30 years ago. So it's another indication that things are changing. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Bruce Lamthier. Learn more about his work in environmental health research at goop.com slash the podcast. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.